Hey, y'all. Welcome to RUF. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm the RUF campus minister here. Really glad that you are with us tonight. If you've got a Bible, you can turn it to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, it's on your handout. It'll be up on the screen as well. Um, we are going to be looking at the second commandment tonight, slowly working our way through the Ten Commandments. And if you're just now joining us, just by, or if you've forgotten what we've looked at the last couple weeks because school is melting your brain, totally understandable. I will remind you, as I often do, uh, the Ten Commandments, the reason we're studying them this semester, I think is because there's a lot of confusion about what are we supposed to do with the rules that the Bible has for us? Um, what does that have to do with us as New Testament Christians? Do we still follow these? And what we've been talking about this semester is that the Ten Commandments are not a checklist of things that you need to do to get into heaven when you die. It's often kind of a popular conception of what God requires of us, uh, that he's got these rules that he's laid out in the Bible, and if you keep them, you get to go to the good place. If you don't keep them, you go to the other place. And what we've been saying every week is that's actually not what the Bible tells us about the context of these rules or the reason that God uh, has given them to Israel or to us. We looked at the first couple of weeks that God delivered Israel out of slavery before he gives them the commandments. Right? So we said this the first week. He didn't say, uh, if you guys will have no other gods before me, then I'll rescue you out of slavery in Egypt. He rescued them first. And now is inviting them to keep these commandments as a way to avoid going back into slavery. And the New Testament says that it works the same way for us. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians tells us it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. And this is, our, is not our own doing. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. And then he, says, he tells us why God gave us this free gift of grace. He tells us in the very next verse, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so if you missed all of that, the main idea is this. We are saved to do good works. We don't do good works to be saved. So since we don't need to keep this law to be saved, if Jesus kind of covers everything for us, why do we need to bother with them? Why do we need to pay attention to them? And God gave them to Israel as a way to stay free, and he's given them to us for that exact same reason. These are guidelines for how to live the way that we were designed to live, the way that God made us to live. So if they were going to avoid going back into slavery like they were in Egypt, this is how they had to live. And similarly, similarly for us, if we're going to avoid going back into the slavery of our sin, this is a compass and a guideline for us as well. How do we stay free? How do we live in right relationship with God? So last week we looked at the first commandment. God tells Israel he wants them all to himself. He'll not share them with anyone or anything else. They're not supposed to have any other gods before him. Their worship is supposed to be for Yahweh, their God, alone. This week we're looking at the second commandment, which is intimately connected to the first. Uh, if the first commandment was about who to worship, the second commandment is about how we worship. If the first commandment's about the right God to worship, the second commandment's about how does that God want to be worshipped? How are we to worship him? So tonight we're going to look at the negative side of the rule, the positive side of the rule, and then the remedy for us. Negative side of the rule, positive side, and then the remedy for us. So let me pray for us, and then I will read uh, a couple of verses, and we'll go from there. Let me pray. God in heaven, we thank you for this time together. We pray now as we open your word, and we know that we don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. So we pray that you would feed us tonight. Jesus, you said that you were our good shepherd uh, and that your sheep know your voice. And so I pray that you would help us to hear it tonight. 
Uh, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. This is Exodus 20, and I'm going to read the preface again just to remind us of why the context of why God is giving these commands, and then we'll move down to verse 4 where the second commandment actually is. So this is Exodus 21 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then skipping down to verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Man, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word endures forever. As you've already been reminded tonight, Valentine's Day is coming on Friday for all of us, a day for many of us that is fraught with anxiety for many reasons, right? For some of us, it's the annual reminder that we have not yet found our one true love that we've been looking for to complete us in this life. Uh, others of you are in relationships, and this day is anxiety-producing for other reasons for you, uh, because what do you get your significant other? Uh, significant other is really cold language, by the way, right? What are the rest of us, insignificant others? That's extremely rude. Uh, very clinical. Anyway, what do you get them, right? What are you supposed to get someone on Valentine's Day? Gift giving is really hard, I think, for most of us because everyone is different about what they like to receive and how they like to receive it. Some people just want the most expensive thing that you can afford as a sign of how much they mean to you, right? They don't really care what it is as long as it's expensive. Some people want a handwritten letter full of words of affirmation. They don't really care about the gift. They just want the words, some people just want quality time with you or they want an experience that they can remember and put on Instagram for all your friends to be jealous of, right? Everybody wants different things from these gifts. What is the number one mistake that you can make in gift giving when it comes to relationships? I'm about to open this up for you right now. I'm going to tell you what it is. The number one mistake you can make in gift giving in relationships is giving the other person the gift that you want rather than the kind of gift that they want, Okay. Giving in the way that you want to receive rather than the way that they want to receive. Gentlemen, I'm trying to save you a lot of heartache down the road, okay? If you listen to this, you'll be way ahead of where I was. I figured this out like two weeks ago, so <laughs> save yourself some pain. One of the things I had to learn early in my marriage to marry, so we've been married for seven years now, and one of the things that I had to realize early on is that me asking what do you want when, she, when it was time to buy her a gift for like Christmas or birthday or Valentine's or whatever, and then simply getting that thing, gift wrapping it, and then just handing that to her on the day is not romantic, right? That's not exciting for anyone. So our first few birthdays and anniversaries together were so painful because I would ask Mary, like, what do you want? What do you want for your birthday? Which seems like a pretty reasonable question, but neither here nor there. She would sort of reluctantly name something, and then I would get that thing, and I would be all excited because, like, she said she wanted it. And then on the day, I would be like... <coughs> Ta-da, I did it. And she would kind of look at me like, thanks. Like, is that it? And I would be like, yes, that is it. Well, this is the list that you gave me. Like, I acquired it. Mission accomplished. Achievement unlocked. We did it. We got the thing that you wanted. I was giving Mary gifts the way that I wanted to receive gifts. Because for me, getting the thing I asked means that you listened to me, that you cared about me, right? When some people, like, love to be creative and, like, 
give you the thing that you never anticipated. And for me, I experienced that as selfishness. Do not do that. Just give me the thing that I want. That makes it about you. But Mary is different than me. She experiences gift giving differently than I do. She could care less about the gift. All she wants to know is that I put thought into it and that I care about her and that I'm trying to communicate that to her in some way or another, which I thought is what I was doing, but I was not. I learned. So I've since figured it out. Okay, so imagine if I knew that about my wife and learned that after the first couple of birthdays and anniversaries and Valentine's Day, and then I just kept giving her gifts my way anyway. Just kept saying, like, well, this is how we should do it. This is how I would do it, so you should just get over it. If I just said, look, this is the way that I like to give gifts, deal with it. Why would that be wrong? It would be wrong because the gift is for her, right? That's the whole point. The gift is for her. The whole thing is about her. It's her birthday or she's the one opening the Christmas present, whatever. It's about her. It's not about me. I ought to give her the gift the way that she wants to receive it. That's the point. Last week, we learned that we are supposed to worship God alone. That's what he is calling us to. That's what he's inviting us into. And this week, we learn that how we worship him matters. Matters to him. To worship God in whatever manner we please is to try to give him the gift of our worship without taking into account how he wants us to give it to him. It's to try to keep on saying, I'm, this is how I give gifts. Deal with it. And God is trying to say, no, this is how I want you to do it. This is how I want to receive it. So how are we to worship God? How is this actually supposed to go? The second commandment gives us the rule for our worship, and we're going to look at that first, both positively and negatively. And I'm using that language of positive and negative because I need to introduce a principle of interpretation that we're just going to keep using throughout the rest of the semester in the Ten Commandments. So not original to me. This has been handed down by Christian theologians, even Jewish scholars before them. And it's simply this. Each one of the Ten Commandments has a positive side and a negative side. So wherever there's something that's forbidden, the opposite thing is also commanded. Or wherever there's something commanded positively, the negative is forbidden. Does that make sense? Uh, so whenever we see a thou shalt not, we're safe to assume the positive, which would be the opposite of that, negative is also commanded. So let me give you the example of the sixth commandment, right? When it says do not kill, it's not simply saying avoid murder and you're okay, right? The principle underneath the commandment is that we're to cherish and to cultivate life. We're supposed to live in a way that cultivates life. Does that make sense? When you're at the pool, right, and it says, like, don't run around the pool, it doesn't mean you can also jog around the pool, right? The principle is, no, be safe. Walk around the pool. Okay, so we're going to be using that interpretive principle to help us unpack all the commandments the rest of the semester, but especially tonight, the second commandment. And we're going to start with the negative side. What's the negative side of the rule? What's forbidden in this commandment. God forbids, straight up, Israel from representing him visually. They cannot make the invisible God visible. He says, I'm not, I'm not something that you can see. Uh, don't pretend that I am. Don't make me something. Don't pretend that I'm visible. Uh, he gives this long list of things he's not supposed to be represented by. Nothing in the sky above, nothing on the earth beneath, nothing in the waters. Basically, that's covering everything, right? Anything, anywhere. Don't represent me with those things. All of those things are created realities. And God is saying, I'm the creator. I'm higher than that. I'm bigger than that. To bring me down to that level is an insult. Why would God command that to Israel? 
okay, remember the context of where Israel is coming from. Where have they just been in slavery? They've just been in slavery in Egypt. Egypt, as we've already established, polytheistic culture to end all polytheistic cultures. They worship many gods, nearly all of which they represented in the form of animals. Right? So the god Horus had the head of a falcon. The god Anubis had the head of a jackal, so on. Right? All their gods were represented by animals in some way or another. And Israel's God says, none of that. I don't want any of that. Don't represent me that way. Which, as we go into this commandment, you may think, okay, I mean, not super relevant for us. Don't really do the whole worshiping a lion-headed thing anymore, right? It's been years since I've done that. I never, right? You never worship wooden things in your closet. But we're not quite out of the woods yet, uh, even though we are not like that, right? Even though we don't have little statues that we pray to, probably. I assume you don't. Don't do that. That would be, I guess we should just say that on the front end. That's also forbidden by this commandment. But remember that Jesus gave us another interpretive principle for the Ten Commandments. Because he said that every commandment has a spiritual application. Beyond just the mere words, beyond the physical thing that's forbidden, there's a spiritual component to what's being forbidden. So when he says, he says you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. It's the seventh commandment. We're going to get to it. But he, he says that that commandment also means not lusting after someone in your heart. That when you look upon someone lustfully, that you've actually broken the seventh commandment. So that means not only physically committing adultery is out of bounds, but thinking about it is out of bounds. It has a deeper application. It says the same thing about do not kill, uh, that we, if we've hated our brother or sister in our hearts, that we have effectively murdered them. We've broken the sixth commandment, which means that every commandment has a deeper spiritual application beyond just the surface level one. So the surface level one for Israel was don't Worship those wooden things in your closets. Don't do that. Don't make God into an image. But there's something deeper going on for them and for us. Because what, he's re what the commandment is really saying is, don't worship God however you want. Don't make God into an image after your own creation. And I think this really applies to us with the mental images of God that we have. How many times have we said, I've said this many times, how many times have we said something along the lines of, I like to think about God like blank. When I think about God, I like to think of him this way. Do you remember the scene from uh, Talladega Nights? Do you remember that movie? And they're sitting around the table and they're getting ready to pray and they're talking about how they like to picture Jesus. Don't laugh too hard because we are supposed to be talking about the Bible right now. But they imagine Jesus wearing a tuxedo shirt, right? Because he says I'm formal, but he also likes to party. That is the most ridiculous an absurd representation of something that we all do all the time. We create images in our heads of what we want God to be like or to sound like, things that we want God to be for or against, um, that sometimes we've pulled that from Scripture, but sometimes we haven't. Sometimes we've just created it in our heads. I think this is why many of you have such a hard time when you actually go to read the Bible, uh, because the God and Jesus you encounter there don't look like the one you have in your head. And you don't really know how to square that. What do, how do I fit this with the way that I think about God? The way that I like to think about God? And when you have that question, you have one of two options in front of you. You can let your imagination shape the text of Scripture, right? So you can sand off the rough edges of the Bible. Uh, you can take the parts that you like that fit with the image of God that you have. Uh, and you can leave the parts that don't. Right? You could do that. You could say, I don't, you can kind of treat the Bible like a buffet. I don't like that. I like this part. I'm going to take the parts that I like. Or the other option that you have is that you can let Scripture shape your imagination so that it comes more and more in line with who 
the Bible portrays God to be. So that the image and the thought, that the conception of God that you have in your head is more in line with what it says rather than the other way around. We might phrase it this way. You can let the truth of Scripture shape your imagination. You can let it inform what you believe about God. Um, when I was a student at Ole Miss, my campus minister uh, was a man named Les Newsom, and he actually was the one who pointed out this reality to me. Um, he used this illustration to describe this. Think about the way that you, your view of your parents has changed over the years. Um, when you're little, right, pick your mom or your dad or, or whoever you want to here, your parents are perfect, or at least close enough that you really want to be like them, right? And we're talking about when you're really little, right, when you're still not aware of everything. You want to be like your parents. You love your mom and your dad. You want to follow them around. You want to do whatever your dad does for work. That's what you want to do for work or, vice, or if it's your mom, maybe. Um, then you transition into your teenage years, right? And in your, in your teenage years, your parents become a different thing. They become these like colossal embarrassment monsters that you just like don't want anything to do with and you're just waiting until the government releases you from them when you turn 18. You just don't want to be around your parents at all, right? There's this massive shift in how you think about mom and dad. Something interesting, I think, happens as you transition into college and then adulthood beyond that. And I wonder if you've begun to, ex to experience it yet. The older that you get, the more sympathetic you become towards your parents. They become more human to you. And if that hasn't happened yet, um, I hope that it will. It's definitely happened for me as I've gotten older. And the reason for that is because many of you are experiencing exactly how hard life is. As you've gotten to college, you're experiencing how painful life is. And you're looking at your parents and you're realizing, oh, they're having to do this thing too. They're having to go through the same things I am. And no one gave them like magic instructions to do it. They've navigated it on their own. And that actually changes the way you view your parents. One of the most uh, humbling things for me as we've had our son Cooper, who's like 15 months old now, accidentally said at church yesterday <laughs> that he was 15 years old. And I think... <laughs> People were just like, you don't even look 15. How is, that, how is that possible? I don't have a secret family. We just have the one family and the one 15-month-old. But I was, as I've come to like taking care of Cooper and things like changing his diaper, um, there's this weird realization you have that like, oh, my parents did this for me. Like my parents changed my diaper. Uh, like most of you, like when I think about my parents, like when I talk to my parents about anything, politics, whatever, I'm like, I am so much smarter than y'all. This is ridiculous. Like, I'm embarrassed to be discussing this issue with you. But changing my son's diaper reminds me that there was a time when I couldn't do anything but make a mess, and these were the people who cleaned it up. These were the people who read me stories and sang me songs. These were the people um, who's, that I spend so much time with exasperated now. They were there. And it changes the way that I think about them. What's happening to me uh, as this goes on? The truth is breaking in. My parents are not nearly so, as stupid as I think they are. They love me more than I realized. Uh, I have a picture of my mom of who she is, and as I get older, the truth is reshaping it. That she is far wiser and smarter and more loving than I realized when I was a kid, or even when I got to college. She's becoming more human to me. The truth is changing the image I have of her in my head. I tell all that to say, I think the invitation of the second commandment is to stop letting your imagination decide who God is and let the truth break in and bring your imagination in line with reality. 
Let him break in and change the way you think about who he is. Okay, so that raises a really interesting question. How do we actually do that? One thing to talk about it. How do we do that? Um, That brings us to the positive side of the commandment. The negative side is to not create God in our own image. Don't make God in your own image. Don't Don't worship God just however you want to. So what's the positive side? How do we let the truth about who God is break in on us and shape how we think about him and how we worship him? How do we hear God on his own terms? Okay, go back to the illustration I gave you at the beginning uh, of tonight about me and Mary. And just imagine that we have a couple where the husband didn't learn, right? Where they've been doing that dance for years. The husband only gives in the way that he would want to receive. And it's not just birthdays and anniversaries. He relates to his wife in this way in every aspect of their marriage. It's always like this all the time. And they started, and they fight about it all the time. Every aspect of their marriage, uh, every conversation they have, this couple is just completely talking past each other. And it never seems to get better. What do most couples nowadays do when they get into that scenario? They go to counseling, right? Hopefully. Hopefully they have somebody that will tell them to do that, that they will go to counseling. Why do they go see a counselor? Because their patterns of relating are so entrenched that they can't get themselves out. They can't understand each other anymore. They need a third party. They need a referee. They need someone who can help them see their relationship from a different perspective, who can help them see it more objectively. They need a word from the outside. They need someone to break in. And so the counselor helps this husband hear his wife, helps him understand her in a way that he can't when she's explaining it to him, how she wants to be loved. And in the best scenarios, I think this is the great news about marriage counseling, in the best scenarios, it works. That breaks through the fog and helps people change. And I'm illustrating it that way to say that for Christians in this scenario, the Bible is our counselor. It tells us the truth about God and who he is. It is the third party that comes in. It is the word from the outside. And, how, and it tells us who he is and how he wants us to love and to worship him. I, I put this passage on your handout. Some of you will remember this story when we did uh, the parables last semester Uh, There's a story that Jesus tells in Luke 16 that deals with exactly this subject, about Scripture working in this way. And Jesus tells the story of a rich man. I'm not going to read the passage. I'll just summarize. Uh, There's a rich man who spends his life ignoring a beggar on his own property. And when the two of them die at the same time, one goes to be comforted at Abraham's side, and the other goes into torment. And there's this brief discussion between the rich man who is in torment and this character named Father Abraham about the inevitability of the situation before the rich man. And so he realizes he can't get out of where he is. And so he asks Father Abraham about his five brothers. What's going to happen to them? He doesn't want them to come to the same place. And he wants Father Abraham to send the poor beggar Lazarus, who's ended up at Abraham's side. He wants Abraham to send Lazarus back to his brothers and warn them before it's too late. And Father Abraham's response almost seems way too simplistic. He says, they have Moses and the prophets, and he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures there. He says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. Effectively, Father Abraham is telling him, they have the Bible. They have everything they need to convince them. They have enough information. They don't need someone else to come back and give them more information. And this completely blows the rich man's mind. He does not believe this. His response actually breaks the second commandment because he decides to to decide how it actually works. He says, no, 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 if someone comes back from the dead, then they will believe it. If they see somebody come back from the dead, they'll believe it. 
The rich man thinks that those who reject the reality of God's truth only do so because they lack evidence. That that's the real problem. There's not enough proof for this. There's not enough evidence. Give them more data. Send them somebody back from the dead. Then they'll believe. Which actually seems like a fairly reasonable thing, right? It's like the plot of the Christmas carol. Right? The ghost comes back, Scrooge, and tells him all about the things, warns him. He changes his life. That's what the rich man's saying. Do that. Send somebody back from the dead. What the rich man doesn't get is that, that the Bible tells us that actually doesn't work. The Bible says that lack of information is not our problem. We have plenty of information. It's that we don't like the information that we have, and so we don't act on it. How many of us, I mean, we, I think we can just see this in our own lives outside of this big question about God. How many of us need more information on how bad it is to never sleep? Right? You know that's bad for you, and you do it all the time anyway. Or how, how bad it is to survive on Red Bulls and pizza or whatever, right? How bad that is for you. Or how bad it is to procrastinate like crazy. We all know how bad it is. It has never stopped us, right? We still do it. We know it's bad. Knowledge is not our problem. We don't need more think pieces, more advice about procrastination. We know. We're aware. And Father Abraham tells the rich man that more information is not his brother's problem either. Father Abraham actually sums up the point of the parable to the rich man this way. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they do not hear scripture, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You catch what he's saying there, right? If they don't believe scripture, nothing will convince them. Nothing else will convince them. Scripture tells us that our self-deception is so powerful that it takes more than a mere deposit of information to break us out of it. This is why the Bible actually never describes itself just as words about God, but describes itself as God's words themselves. Because God's word changes stuff. God's word has power to break through. It isn't mere information about God. It is God himself speaking. And when God speaks, stuff happens. Paul says this in Romans 10, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That somehow when we are talking about God's word, something's going on. This is why we pray the way we do at RUF and ask the Holy Spirit to be here with us because we believe that something's going on. And it's not because I'm good at what I do. You come often enough to know that. It's because God is at work when his word is opened up, no matter who's up there doing it. The point of this whole lesson is that you are never going to find God until you find him in a place where he has said that he would be found. So this question of like, how do we worship God the way he wants to be worshiped? The answer to that question is in scripture. It's not in us. It's not making it up on our own. It's going to his word and finding what he has to say to us. But again, we have that same problem I mentioned earlier. For most of us, we come to the Bible and we treat it like a buffet line where we can take the parts we like and discard the parts that we don't like, the boring parts, the name parts, all the parts that we're like, this is that you get to and you're like, I don't even know how, what I'm supposed to do with this. I don't even know how to pronounce most of this. And rather than sitting in our discomfort and letting that shape us, we just think, okay, I'm not going to bother with that part. We say things like, I like the New Testament, but the Old Testament God seems really angry. It seems super wrathful. Or I like Jesus, but Paul, man, he's kind of, it feels like he distorted some stuff. And even some of the things the Bible says Jesus said can't be right. Like about, him, about hell or him being God or him rising from the dead, that doesn't happen. Um, right? Eventually, you sniff enough parts away and there's not much left. That's the problem that we face. 
The bigger problem that we face is that when we do that, we're refusing to let God speak. We're refusing to let him speak on his terms. We are violating the second commandment because we are shaping God in our image. We're saying, no, this is how you can be. God, this is how you are allowed to be. This is what you're allowed to say, and this is what you're allowed to do, and this is what you're allowed to ask me to do. And in that scenario, you're not worshiping God. You're being God. You are God in that scenario. We're breaking the second commandment when we do that. Our faith, such as it is, has become a graven image. And the Bible tells us that we don't need to remake God in our image. We need to be remade in His. And the good news for us is that the Bible, when we let it speak to us, tells us that that is exactly what God intends to do. He intends to remake you into his image. And that brings us to the remedy for us. What do we do? How do we actually keep this commandment? God remakes us into his image by bringing us into a saving relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. When God created the world, Genesis 1 tells us that he created men and women in his image. We were made to be like God, to reflect his glory. Side note, this is another reason why God tells us not to make images of him, uh, because he's already made images of himself. It's us. We are the images of God in the world. We're not supposed to make God's images because we're supposed to be God's image. But if you've read the next couple of pages of Genesis, you know the story. It doesn't stay that way. Adam and Eve sin, and so does everyone after them, including us, and we're damaged by our fall into sin. The image of God in us has been broken in some way. It's been defaced. Um, we're like the glorious ruins of the ancient world that still stun us with their beauty, but are clearly a shadow of what they were made to be. You look at the Colosseum in Rome, and it's, it stuns us. And you, then you wonder what it looked like before it started to crumble. And that's what we are. Broken images of God. Glorious ruins. And in our sin, the Bible tells us that we're no longer able to reflect God's glory as he originally intended us to do it. And that's a sad truth. Until we hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That God is not content to leave things that way. He was not content to leave us broken. He has sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to repair his image in us. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And the author of Hebrews tells us that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. God sends his image into the world to restore his image in us. And Jesus himself went so far as to say that anyone who has seen him has seen the Father. Anyone who has seen him has seen God. So scripture tells us that to come to God in true worship, we do it through Jesus. How do we worship God the way he wants to be worshipped? We do it through Jesus. We worship Jesus. And when we come to God through him, scripture tells us that God lives in us by his Holy Spirit. And that spirit goes to work in us to fix us, to repair his image in us so that we can live for his glory. So the invitation for us tonight is to worship God the way that he wants to be worshipped. How do we do that? We, we worship Jesus. And we look to the scriptures and see what God commands of us. What does he ask of us? What does he not ask of us? And, we, and in so doing, we are conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing. God in heaven, we thank you um, that this, is, this word is true. That you our good God who was not content to leave us broken and far off, even though that's what we chose and what we would have kept on choosing apart from you. We thank you for Jesus and the life that he lived and this law that he kept perfectly in every way that we couldn't. 
and the way that he died on the cross to atone for the fact that we are only and ever lawbreakers. And we thank you that he rose from the dead and has invited us into a relationship with you that we might now keep this law, not to get anything from you, but because we already have everything from your hand. And because you are inviting us to be free, to stay free. Pray that you would help us to do that. Would you help us to worship you as you long for us to worship you? To give you the gift of our worship as you long to receive it. And that you would help us to stop trying to make you into our image. Stop trying to shape you into what we want you to be. And realize that something better already exists. And that's you as you truly are. Pray that you would help us to live in light of that. For your glory and for our good. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.